It's my great pleasure to uh, chair the final keynote of this uh, very exciting conference. Um, and it's also my equally, if not greater, equally great, if not greater pleasure to introduce Professor Michael Hudson. Um, you can see here, I let you read here all his great and distinguished accomplishments, but in my introduction, I'd like to take a slightly more personal approach. Uh, I first uh, encountered Michael Hudson when I was trying to figure out for myself what all the rhetoric of globalization was about. And a Marxist friend of mine said, have you read this book called Super Imperialism? And I immediately got hold of a copy, and I read it, and I was blown away by the level of understanding and the particular combination of the structural economic analysis as well as, so as to combine structural economic analysis with the actual intentions and actions of particular actors, be they government officials or institutions, etc. So this was back in the late 1990s. And since then, of course, I've read more of Michael's work and I've come to appreciate it more and more. And another thing I particularly wanted to emphasize is that I've actually found that compared to most of the writers I've read, and I've read uh, a lot of writers on the subject of money and Marx's understanding of money and the role of money in the capitalist system, and all of these things put together, and I found Michael's understanding to be of an extremely high order of sophistication and accuracy. So I think that uh, Michael's uh, talk, the title of the talk uh, that Michael's about to give has changed quite a lot. So I'll let Michael introduce uh, 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 his talk himself. But all I want to say is that I th think we're in for a real treat. So please join me in welcoming Professor Michael Hudson. I can't think of a conference where uh, I've learned uh, so much, starting with the wonderful three-hour tour of uh, Winnipeg and the general strike in 1919. It's sort of a metaphor for everything that uh, we're describing in the world today, that uh, here you had a city that had the potential to be taken off. Uh, they talked of it as a potential Chicago. And what happened? The uh, workers in the general strike wanted the same things that workers all over the world have uh, wanted. They wanted higher prosperity, uh, they wanted decent pay, shorter hours would have been more productive, and yet the ruling class of Winnipeg, the thousand, said we, we could have a wonderful uh, growth, we could make a lot of money in real estate alone by immigrants coming here, we could make it a center, but then other people would have to get uh, rich just like we are. We don't want it. We would rather be relatively rich and keep them poor than, uh, than uh, have development. We want to keep our status of control over them so that we have all of the initiative, all of the planning power, uh, and uh, they are powerless because that is for us the system. It's not an economic system. It's the same system uh, that existed in Rome. And uh, the result, of course, is that Winnipeg didn't become another Chicago. It became Winnipeg today. Well, this same attitude is the attitude that the United States is taking towards the rest of the world. And the question is, will the rest of the world be more successful than the Winnipeg uh, strikers uh, were uh, in, 19, in 1919? 
from the very beginning, I've been a, a part of uh, WAPE. In the very first issue, volume one, number one, uh, David uh, and I, uh, Laidman and I had uh, an article. So we've been part of this uh, for a long time. Uh, I want to thank uh, both Radhika and uh, uh, Alan for the wonderful organization uh, of this meeting. I did uh, write a paper for it that uh, maybe uh, will be posted, but I've, uh, after listening to the discussions here, I've decided to make a different uh, set of uh, comments. And I think the framework for my comments is that capitalism has not evolved uh, in the way that Marx expected. Uh, Marx wasn't wrong, but he was an optimist. He, uh, he thought that capitalists would act in their own self-interest. Well, of course, if they would have acted in their self-interest, you wouldn't have had the Winnipeg general strike. Uh, he uh, thought that their interest was going to be in becoming more efficient, in streamlining the economy, and getting rid of the fictitious costs, what he called the false costs or faux frais uh, of production. And uh, he's rightly been called a revolutionary, but what upset the uh, vested interests more than anything else was not simply that Marx was a revolutionary, but that he showed that capitalism itself was revolutionary. He said the historical destiny of capitalism was to get rid of the landlord class that simply collected rent without providing any productive service, uh, the task of capitalism was to uh, get rid of parasitic uh, finance and uh, instead uh, finance would be used to uh, fund industrialization as it seemed to be happening in his time uh, in Germany and in Central Europe. Uh, and he thought that uh, the role of capitalism was to be so much more efficient that in a speech he gave before the Chartists in London, he supported free trade not on the basis of uh, the, ne uh, the neoclassical and neoliberal uh, silliness of free trade uh, is being productive, but he said, well, the one virtue of free trade uh, is going to be that since Britain is the most efficient economy, uh, its trade with India is going to break down all of the backwardness of India. And uh, as British manufacturers undersell the manufacturers of countries that are backward, that have elites, that have predatory and parasitic uh, vested interests and ruling classes, uh, they would have to either uh, modernize or be swept away. And uh, it seemed logical to him that capitalism would uh, pave the way uh, for a natural evolution into socialism by at least getting rid of the carryovers of uh, feudalism, uh, the landed invasions, the warlords that uh, became the lords and controlled the politics, uh, and the land. Well, as we all know, that's not uh, what the leading economy of the United States is today. If Marx were looking at the United States, he wouldn't say, I think that it's wonderful that all the other countries uh, should follow the United States lead because it's going to bring about prosperity uh, and efficiency. Uh, in contrast to England in the Industrial Revolution, the United States has become the most inefficient economy in the world in terms of manufacturing. Uh, the reason that uh, there cannot be a revival of uh, manufacturing industry in this country is simply because the accumulation of debt 
has gone so large that uh, and the uh, price of housing and the privatization of monopolies and health insurance has become so expensive that if uh, American workers were to get all of their food, all of their clothing, all of their transportation for nothing, for f zero, they still couldn't compete with uh, uh, foreign with China or even Europe, because uh, the, out of Every paycheck, uh, they have to pay up to 40% of their income for rent. 15% is taken off uh, wage, uh, wage withholding for uh, social insurance and uh, medical care. Another 10% for uh, payments of uh, interest and debt. Uh, so only a small portion of the workers' budget is available to be spent on the goods and services uh, they produce. So the United States is left in a uh, very high, high cost position and has become something that is different from the industrial capitalism that Marx talked about uh, in his day. Uh, industrial capitalism has become finance capitalism. Uh, and the roots of finance capitalism, the basic analysis for it, uh, is all outlined in Marx's volume three of Capital and volume two. The reason he left it for volume three and volume two and not in volume one was he thought that uh, there was already uh, the 1848 revolutions in Europe, Already there was pressure uh, to uh, tax away uh, the rent of the uh, landlords. Already there was pressure uh, to create a public uh, subsidy of health, of uh, basic uh, monopolies, of post office, of transportation and communication. Uh, and for, uh, by the time Marx wrote, he thought, okay, that fight has been one, uh, capitalism can take care of uh, uh, the post-feudalism problem, and Marx talked about the problems of capitalism itself, the relationship between the employer and uh, the employee, and for him, uh, industrial capital was uh, money that uh, was spent on employing labor to make a, a profit and squeeze out uh, surplus value. Uh, this seemed to be the way that the world was evolving, until World War I. And World War I uh, really uh, changed all of that. Uh, England uh, found itself bankrupted by uh, the debt that it owed to the United States. Uh, the, uh, when the war was over, uh, for, for hundreds of years, Europeans at the end of a war had simply uh, canceled the mutual debts because they thought we were all in it together. But the United States said, well, we sold you a lot of arms before we were in the war, so we're really not brothers. You have to pay us uh, enough money that, uh, to cause mass unemployment there to essentially do to England uh, what the IMF has done to the third world uh, after World War II. Uh, and so England and France uh, that also had to pay inter-ally debts turned to Germany uh, to pay the reparations and uh, caused uh, austerity and uh, a crisis uh, in Germany. And the result, of course, was uh, a chronic uh, depression, uh, the, the, a buildup of debts that finally all had to be wiped out in 1931-1932, uh, when the inter-allied debts and reparations were forgiven, and uh, the, uh, the crisis was so great that it brought on the World Depression of the 30s that uh, was only pulled out by, uh, uh, by World War II. So 
What has happened since World War II was something that Marx uh, could not have expected. He thought that uh, banking and finance capital would be industrialized, would be uh, that these, uh, he described finance as external. Finance existed in, in Babylonia in the third millennium BC. It existed, interest-bearing debt was in Rome and Greece, uh, but all of this debt, Marx described, was simply parasitic. It, it took money and it accumulated and it grew by the mathematics of compound interest. And uh, Marx collected everything that was written in his day on the mathematics of compound interest. And he said it grows inexorably, by purely mathematical laws of its own power uh, and is not part really of the capitalist system. But if uh, the banks made productive loans to industry where the, uh, cr the bank credit provided the industrial borrower with the means of earning a profit able to repay the debt, then uh, that would uh, become productive and that would become a basis that even socialism uh, could uh, uh, could apply, and many uh, of the, his, Marx's followers in the 19th century expected the banks to be uh, the planning center, the uh, incipient planning center of uh, the socialism to come. And this view was based largely on the German experience where there was a, a combination of uh, uh, the, lar the Reichsbank, uh, the large banks, uh, the military uh, for uh, credit, uh, for armaments, especially for uh, the building of navies, uh, and, uh, and heavy industry. And it was uh, largely a uh, government-coordinated uh, uh, development in Germany, which seemed to be uh, headed towards the leadership of the world. This terrified England because England uh, really had failed to uh, do what uh, it seemed potentially able to do in 1848. Uh, it wasn't able to get rid of the banks. By the uh, time that, uh, in 1914, uh, when the uh, World War I broke out, there was a, a set of articles in the Economic Journal in England worrying that England was going to lose uh, World War one, the war, because its uh, financing was so predatory, so greedy, so corrupt, uh, and its behavior was so short-term, hit and run, that it could not possibly uh, uh, compete against uh, an economy that had uh, basically planned productive credit as Germany had. Uh, the uh, stockbrokers in England were notorious for uh, putting people into finance, their customers into financial frauds and just hitting and, run hitting and running for taking over companies and insisting that uh, the companies pay all of their uh, income out as dividends, not reinvest uh, uh, their uh, profits, not uh, accumulate productive power, but rather simply build up debt. And uh, uh, the Marxists were in the lead of describing this phenomenon of finance capitalism that uh, at the time seemed to be a perversion of uh, industrial capitalism, but turned out to be uh, something almost uh, uh, entirely different. Uh, and we all know the result of that. That was World War II. And in World War II, the United States set out uh, to dominate the world and make itself the center, sort of a wheel and spoke. 
uh, system. Uh, the, the United States called this globalization or internationalism, uh, but the uh, role of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund was uh, not internationalist at all in the spirit that uh, we just heard describing the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the idea uh, of, of the World Bank was not to promote development, but to promote dependency. Uh, the uh, leading uh, assumption of the World Bank was under no case would domestic currency loans be made to develop uh, agricultural self-sufficiency in countries to become independent and grow their own food. From the very beginning, the United States wanted uh, uh, loans to go only to the export sector. Third world countries, Latin America, Africa, the Near East, were told to depend on American grain and the, the loans were only for uh, export crops, uh, the, uh, to build railroads and roads to uh, lower the cost of making exports so that America could get raw materials uh, from other countries. And uh, America became, uh, is, is it accused, uh, England of wanting to make it in uh, the 19th century, hewers of wood and drawers of water. That was how the Bible uh, phrased it. So, uh, you know, what has happened uh, as a result? Well, uh, we had a dependency system here. The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, at the time, America, uh, emerged from uh, World War II, uh, it had by far most of the uh, gold supply of the world, and at that time, uh, the uh, domestic money uh, created by central banks was based uh, on gold. Uh, the United States uh, had such a dominant position that by the time the, Viet uh, the uh, Korean War broke out in 1950, the United States had accumulated 75% uh, of the world's uh, gold supply. Uh, this meant that other countries uh, were facing austerity. Uh, the Americans expected, quite correctly, that uh, as a result there was going to be rising uh, social revolution uh, in these countries. So uh, they be they, uh, the American free market planners realized uh, the, the first premise of free market economic theory. I don't know why this is left out of the premise out of the textbooks that they teach. The first premise is you cannot have a free market unless you're willing to assassinate everyone who opposes you, unless you can uh, uh, have a regime change for any country that does not follow a free market. All of Roman history is this, the fifth, fourth, third, uh, first century BC. Every single advocate of debt cancellation, of uh, land redistribution, of democracy uh, was, was killed. Uh, the United States immediately set up a regime change in Guatemala, overthrowing uh, the government that, uh, our Ben's government that wanted land reform. Uh, and it uh, came in in support of br uh, British petroleum in, uh, or, uh, in uh, Iran and overthrew the elected Mossadegh regime. Uh, and it's, it uh, installed uh, dictators throughout Latin America long before uh, you had Paris Jimenez in Venezuela, you had everyone there. Uh, Kissinger was very open uh, in uh, backing Pinochet uh, in Chile, saying uh, if you have a, a, an opponent of uh, uh, free markets, meaning well, a free market means 
uh, American dominated. You're only you're free to buy anything you want in the United States, but you have to buy it. Whatever you buy, it's in the United States. Uh, he, he said, uh, we, we have to kill not only the leader, but the entire class. And the result was a, uh, a huge 10-year uh, war throughout all of Latin America, political assassinations of labor leaders, of uh, 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 so, uh, socialists, of academics, of professors, uh, a, a mass of terrorism. And it was really uh, in the 1970s that America emerged as the leading terrorist uh, country uh, in the world, backing its concept of free markets and democracy. Uh, by democracy, it meant pro-American. Any regime, including the uh, Ukrainian Nazis, that uh, are uh, pro-American are called a democracy. Uh, any country, no matter uh, whether they, they elect their leaders or not, uh, is called anti-democratic or totalitarian, meaning uh, other than uh, the United States. So the problem is, uh, wh where can we go from here? Well. The problem with finance capitalism is finance is extractive. Uh, leveraged buyouts, stock uh, buybacks, uh, finance is short term. Uh, banks uh, look at something, how much can we collect, and it's, uh, banks don't lend in terms of what can our loan create in productive capacity to uh, earn the profits to pay. They say, what, uh, uh, if we make a loan, where is the property that we can grab when uh, th there is a default. Uh, the aim of creditors throughout history has not been primarily to earn interest. It's not to earn interest. It's to foreclose and get the property of the debtors that cannot pay the interest. This is essentially the IMF's policy uh, in a nutshell. Uh, it will it is make loans uh, to uh, countries uh, as long as they're in the US orbit. Uh, it will not make loans, uh, loans to countries uh, opposing the US. And it, it makes loans in conjunction with World Bank plans that uh, cannot be paid and when when there is a balance of payments crisis of uh, countries, uh, IMS clients, uh, they're they told, you, ha you can pay us by selling off your property, by privatizing your property, privatizing your mineral resources, privatizing your public utilities and uh, your natural monopolies especially, your electric companies, your water companies, uh, your oil reserves. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, the game, and the IMF essentially is uh, the kneecapper, as we say in America. They, it's the, uh, uh, the gangster for uh, the American objective of buying out uh, control of other countries. Because we're in a position now, which uh, Alan Freeman has uh, pointed out, where the, we're not growing in the United States. And uh, if you look at the actual uh, growth in GDP, all of the growth in American GDP since 2008 has only gone to the top 5% of the American economy, Wall Street, the fires, finance, insurance, and real estate finance sector. The 95% uh, the of the economy is shrunk. And if you say, well, what is this GDP growth? Well, one big element is uh, late fees charged by banks on uh, uh, debtors that can't pay. Uh, when banks charge a late fee, uh, the GDP uh, economists say that's providing a service of taking a risk to provide the economy with credit. 
Uh, the other, may, maybe 8% of the GDP, is uh, the increased value of, uh, ho of homeowners' uh, uh, homes. In other words, uh, they're asked, if you, had, if you own your home, what if you had to pay rent for your home? How much rent would you have to pay? And as housing prices are inflated on credit, uh, the houses, uh, Price goes up, the rents go up more and more, and so uh, this is uh, this increase in GDP is uh, the increased value of uh, homeowners' uh, living conditions, even though it's the same home, no new home has been built, nothing has changed except uh, uh, the inflation of housing prices. So basically, the American, what passes for GDP growth in the United States is simply the increased pr asset pricing, uh, the inability of uh, labor and industry to pay debts, causing uh, uh, late fees, and uh, very and uh, what uh, the classical economists called unearned income, economic rent. So we're in a rentier society, and America's relationship to the rest of the world is that of a rentier, that is a rent extractor. It lives off the interest and uh, the property that it can grab as a result of its international credit. It lives off the dollar standard, a free ride. Uh, other countries are, uh, uh, after America went off gold in 1971, uh, countries uh, had to keep their uh, foreign reserves in some kind of risk-free uh, asset, and the only risk-free asset large enough uh, was the U.S. dollar. And the reason there were so many U.S. dollars in the world is they were pumped into the world economy by means of the balance of payments deficit. Now, balance of payments deficit, that sounds uh, abstract, but in practice, the entire deficit Every cent from the 1950s, 1960s onward was military. In other, the private sector is just about in balance. But the, uh, America, through its 800 military bases over the world and its uh, supply of dirty tricks and its, uh, the American Foreign Legion uh, is very expensive. The Foreign Legion is ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, and the other uh, terrorist groups. So all of this is creating a uh, huge uh, influx of dollars and other country, these dollars end up uh, by the free market uh, being spent largely in China, uh, Asia and other countries, and America, uh, until about uh, a year ago, said all you countries can uh, uh, earn as much as you want by running your own balance of payments trade surpluses, but you have to provide, send all of your surplus to the United States by buying U.S. Treasury bonds to finance not only the U.S. budget deficit by the Treasury bonds, but to finance our expenditure on encircling you with our 800 military basis. That's called uh, circular flow. Uh, and that was uh, the definition of equilibrium uh, that they had. Now, you can imagine my surprise uh, uh, a few months ago when Donald Trump came out and accused China of manipulating its currency uh, by buying U.S. Treasury bonds. And Trump's argument was uh, somehow he read an economics textbook. 
This was a disaster. He was very successful being a petty criminal throughout his life. He made uh, his money by uh, not paying his workers, by not paying his suppliers, uh, and, and he'd go to his suppliers, offer 50 cents on the dollar, and say, well, if you don't like it, sue me. And in the United States, it costs about $50,000 to mount a court case to collect. And uh, uh, he ended up cheating people. He didn't pay the banks. He defaulted. No bank in the United States will lend to Donald Trump. No contractor in New York City, where I live, will uh, deal with him. No labor will deal with him. Uh, he thought that it worked for him, it'll work for the United States. Why can't he? Uh, all you have to do uh, is uh, uh, promise the moon, uh, which is called equilibrium, I guess, for economists, and uh, uh, then say, well, we, uh, here's what we're going to pay you. Uh, it, it doesn't, it obviously uh, is not working, but uh, this puts other countries, including China, in a dilemma. What is it going to do with all of the dollar payments that it gets from other countries in Asia, in the third world, in the United States? Where, where, uh, it, what will it do with them? Well, a few years ago, it said, well, the natural thing for us to do is what the United States does. We will recycle. The, uh, this, uh, these dollars by buying uh, foreign, ind foreign industry. They tried to buy uh, uh, oil, not oil, filling stations, oil distributors uh, in America. America said that's a national security threat. Uh, there was a discussion in Congress. They said anything China owns that makes them richer is a threat to our national security. Well, this is just what. Uh, it was said in Winnipeg in 1919. Any improvement in the status of labor or uh, to anyone but us is a threat to our security and our domination. So China is considered a threat to our national security by being prosperous. Uh, this is not uh, a case of the most efficient economy in the world spreading its way of uh, production into other countries. It makes other countries uh, essentially it's, colonies. It's a form of financial neocolonialism. Uh, and the advantage of neocolonialism uh, in a financial means is you don't have to uh, uh, draft an army. In fact, the whole character of military uh, of control has shifted away from military now. Uh, the last uh, draft in America was in the Vietnam War. And if America tried to invade Venezuela or any other country, uh, you would have the same kind of riots uh, in America uh, uh, that you had during the Vietnam War. So uh, that's why America needs either a fo foreign legion or what's called client oligarchies, uh, like you have uh, uh, it's trying to install throughout Latin America uh, and for other countries. Uh, but uh, you have to sort of feel a little sympathy for America's position, and I, wa I want to uh, make a plea for sympathy. How can this country survive if it can't be permitted to kill your leaders? If it can't be permitted to take over your industry and get, uh, and get uh, all of the rents and the profits and uh, the raw materials uh, uh, for
for free. How on earth can it survive if it, can, if it can't produce its own industrial goods? It's high cost, it's heavily indebted. How on earth uh, are American companies and the employers, uh, the employees who work for them that are heavily indebted? Uh, people will, uh, the pension funds will lose their money. Is uh, the stock prices go down? Is the, uh, the, the banks will go bust? Is uh, their defaults on, on the real estate? So uh, America really uh, feels that the only way that it can survive is by international sabotage. Uh, and that's basically uh, what the, the only kind of war that a democracy can afford to fight is by bombing. It can't afford to uh, have a military draft. It can't afford to invade a country because of the domestic politics. It can only bomb. It can only destroy. That is uh, the only form of warfare that uh, yeah, that uh, is available right now. So uh, what is amazing is uh, the lack of response by uh, Europeans. Uh, the, all of this has been uh, celebrated since about 1980 as the end of history. Uh, and this uh, end of history book uh, came out right after uh, the Soviet Union uh, dissolved. And uh, that was taken by America to say, well, we've won. Uh, the end of history means there is no alternative. And they'll make sure there's no alternative because American policy is to make sure that history will not change, that there won't be an alternative to the current uh, way of doing, uh, of doing things. So this is not a survival of the fittest. It looks like it's uh, the survival of uh, the, paras the parasites. It's a survival of an unproductive, predatory uh, economy. And this, uh, you have, if you're making a forecast about the future, you, the natural tendency is to assume that everyone will act in their self-interest and everything will uh, grow uh, better and better. But that's not happening. If you looked at Rome, exactly the same thing happened uh, in Rome. Uh, finally, by the first century, uh, it, it got, there was such a land grab, such a monopolization of land, such a power of creditors, uh, in, uh, every, in revolution after, uh, after revolution, uprising uh, after uprising, uh, by Catiline, uh, by Dolabella, by, by uh, everybody expected Caesar to cancel the debts, and uh, he was killed uh, by the oligarchy for wanting to be even, even moderate. Uh, you know, the result of uh, what then was uh, neoliberalism, uh, meaning uh, the vested interests are in control, was the dark age in feudalism. So the question is whether the uh, American uh, plan, the uh, neoliberal economics, is going to lead to a new kind of feudalism and how other countries can protect themselves. Uh, Rome uh, survived for a century by looting its more productive, uh, richer provinces like Asia Minor uh, and Gaul. Uh, but finally, there was no more money to loot, and the economy just collapsed uh, from within. And in a way, this, this problem is inherent in uh, Western civilization. It made Greece and Rome different from Sumer, Babylonia, uh, Persia, uh, the Near East. All the Near Eastern countries, uh, when they had a uh, debt problem, uh, the rulers would step in and cancel the debts, and they would reverse 
all of the uh, land transfers where people had lost their land to the, uh, the creditors, uh, the land would be returned to them. Uh, this was uh, every single ruler of Sumer and Babylonia. Uh, in the third millennium and second millennium did this. Uh, this became the jubilee year of the Bible, which was taken over word for word from the Babylonian laws. Uh, it remained in force in the uh, Constantinople, uh, the, the uh, Eastern uh, Christian Empire, but not in the West. The West has the concept of progress, and the, uh, the, this ideal of progress is irreversibility. You can't go back, and if you can't go back, that means right now, if the debts, uh, uh, this was the problem that President Obama faced himself with. Uh, if you, uh, he promised to write down the debts of the junk mortgage loans, of the fictitious loans, and uh, keep the, uh, uh, the population, the uh, homeowners in their house. But then he said, no, progress means you can't cancel the debts, you let the debts completely go up. No wealthy, no member of the 1% will lose, uh, lose their money. That means the 99% has to lose their property. And uh, President Obama invited uh, his Wall Street backers uh, to the White House and said, I'm the only person standing between you and the pitchforks. Uh, the, the mob with pitchforks. These are the people that Hillary Clinton called the deplorables. Uh, it's what uh, Obama called uh, the voters for. Him. And uh, the, uh, the result was uh, the role of the American president uh, was basically to convince the population that somehow all of this neoliberal uh, stagnation uh, uh, that they're experiencing is all for the good. And you have a, uh, the economics profession sort of looking at all of history this way. Uh, all of you have heard about Rome falling into the Dark Age, but there's a new economic history of neoliberals that said, well, it wasn't so dark. If you look at uh, the rich people, there are a lot of big manners and there was a lot of trade in uh, uh, nice ceramics, all Near Eastern. All the traders were Near Eastern. All the, all the money that uh, Rome could extract from its colonies was sent to India uh, or uh, further on, on east. But uh, the, uh, they say that the rich people were had such an enjoyable life that we really can't call it a dark age. It was only a dark age for the 99% of the people. And, uh, but look at the 1%. You know, uh, that's what we have in the museums. Uh, and uh, was it all, all worth it or not? So the question is, what does China do uh, in response to all of this? Uh, well, obviously, the first thing it's doing is uh, uh, agreeing with uh, Donald Trump. Yes, we're going to de-dollarize. Uh, we're, we're, we're certainly not going to keep our savings uh, in loans to the U.S. Treasury that enable you to finance the, and to encircle us uh, with military bases. Uh, so uh, de-dollarization is uh, uh, one aspect. Uh, China's not going to ask uh, the International Monetary Fund uh, to plan its economy and tell it uh, what industries to privatize and sell off uh, to private uh, uh, managers who will uh, simply uh, increase uh, the prices that uh, China has to pay for its electricity, transportation, and others. So, and, and in fact, it's set up uh, its own uh, independent bank as a byproduct of the uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative it has its own bank, uh, and it, its bank is uh, financing uh, actual tangible investment instead of uh, financing uh, uh, dependency. Uh, it, 
in response to the unilateral uh, U.S. trade war and protectionist tariffs, uh, China has the option of uh, countervailing uh, sanctions. Uh, the United States already has uh, uh, large investments in China. Uh, it, the balancing factor would be for China to say, okay, you've taken our, you've grabbed our money, we'll just take uh, what you have here and call it, uh, call it even. Uh, there's uh, obviously a cyber war uh, also. Uh, uh, the, uh, as you know, the American uh, CIA and uh, national security system have worked with the uh, uh, Silicon Valley to install back doors so that it can spy on uh, every other uh, country. Uh, what makes uh, China's uh, uh, Huawei so undemocratic is it doesn't have spyware for the United States. And uh, so uh, that obviously is a threat uh, to the U.S. Uh, control. So uh, you have that. Uh, in place of the uh, class war and the austerity program in the U.S., uh, China's uh, 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 kept its credit in the public domain. This means that in America, when the company, you've seen the wave of bankruptcies of American corporations uh, recently, especially in the uh, retail sales. When uh, an American corporation goes out, a hedge fund or a vulture fund comes in and buys it at a fraction of the cost. In China, there are many uh, uh, industrial plants that have been unable to pay the debt. But because the creditor is the government, the Bank of China can simply run debt, write down the debt. It writes it down so that it keeps the uh, uh, industrial employer in business. It doesn't sell it off to uh, a hedge fund uh, or, an, uh, or an American. Uh, that, uh, China realizes what Marx had uh, expected to be the future for uh, banking and finance. It's a public utility. Uh, it's created electronically, uh, basically credit. It, it's cre any bank can simply uh, uh, make a loan and uh, create money. China's already doing that. Uh, and the, the final capstone is that uh, China's developed an alternative monetary theory, uh, economic theory, to neoliberalism. Uh, and that's Marxism. Marxism looks at the overall context. It places it in the context of politics uh, so that it looks at the economy as a system, not as, uh, as parts to be carved up uh, and uh, essentially looted. So uh, as long as uh, China can continue to uh, develop its uh, monetary policy, its trade policy, its uh, foreign policy, and uh, military policy in keeping with this overall view of systemic uh, uh, growth, uh, it's, it's going to be operating in a way that creates its own future instead of passively uh, surrendering to uh, America's neoliberal future.